I think it's a failure of society. I think it's a failure of the social contract where the governments are supposed to provide us with a basic structure where we can develop ourselves as humans and as citizens. Hello everyone and welcome to Slow Food, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the beauty and complexity of good, clean and fair food systems. I'm Valentina Gritti, I'm your host and a Slow Food Youth Network activist. On this podcast, we meet change makers around the world who are working towards a more sustainable food system and promote a slow lifestyle. This episode is part of the series Slow Food Goes Brussels, where my co-host Alice Poiron dissects the political debates linked to the greatest challenges food and agriculture are facing. Today, we want to find out more about food poverty from a social, economical and political perspective. We will also reveal some marketing tools related to food pricing and much more. Alice, over to you. Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tavir. Gergelecter. Sakula Ijaya. Food. Change. Slow Food, the podcast. Enough food is produced worldwide to feed 10 billion people. Yet, much of the world's population is not properly nourished, while hunger, food insecurity and malnutrition are on the rise globally. We've all seen the price of our food going through the roof this past month. And although such rise is mainly due to the Covid crisis and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, global food security was already under strain before, with 3.1 billion people not able to afford a healthy diet already in 2021. We discussed it at length a few months ago in a previous episode entitled The Global Food Crisis Explained. The first thing to say about this crisis is that it's not a crisis of food production. If we look in terms of net production and consumption of wheat or maize or soy around the world, we're not seeing a supply shortage. If you haven't done so yet, I invite you to listen to it and get a full picture of the economic and geopolitical why and how of the current food crisis. Today, we talk about the consequences of this food crisis, that is, food poverty. What do I mean by food poverty? Well, I mean the inability of individuals and households to secure an adequate and nutritious diet, a problem that leads to serious health issues, but we'll come back to this later. Being able to afford food is a growing concern for increasing numbers of households worldwide as people struggle to cope with the greatest cost of living crisis in a generation and are often forced to cut back on food to meet other essential expenses. But as often in this world, not everyone is affected the same way and it's always the most vulnerable who suffer first, both in the global south and in the global north. I guess you're slightly puzzled right now. How can we have 3.1 billion people suffering from hunger globally while we produce enough food to feed 10 billion people? Very good question. And the answer is, it all comes down to the way our good old globalized and industrialized food system works. Or should I say, fails to work. It's about time we get rid of it, don't you think? And for the change to happen, our governments must step up and truly commit to a complete reshaping of the way we produce retail, transport and consume food. But before we start talking politics, let's take a step back. Why is there food poverty? Who exactly suffers from it? Is it a different food poverty in the global north and in the global south? What are the consequences? Come with me, I'll walk you through it all. 
First stop, the Global South. Hi, Nicole. How are you? All good? Ready for the interview? Yes, feeling great. <laughs> Thank you for agreeing, for taking some time to uh, speak to me. I sat down with Nicole Peter, Project Manager at the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems, aka IPS Food, a think tank that just released a new report in which they draw many links between the debt crisis faced by countries of the Global South and global hunger. So this is an important connection that's not been made before. Usually when when folks talk about debt and high debt loads and debt distress, the blame is often put on economic mismanagement. And really, what we at IPES Food wanted to illuminate is that um, unsustainable levels of debt are tightly connected to food systems and how they've been constructed. And to understand this, we have to go back in history. So if we go back to the last major debt crisis that the world faced, it was in the 1980s. And at that time, there were almost 60 developing countries that couldn't pay back their loans. And without being able to pay back their loans, it was very difficult for them to develop. So the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank came in to rescue these countries. They said, we'll bail you out, we'll give you the funds you need, but under certain conditions. And those conditions had to do with how their governments and economies were structured. So they were told to cut public spending on things like education and health care. And they were told to reform their economies, to liberalize them and open them up to trade. And they were told that if they were going to pay back their debts in the future, they needed to generate dollars. And for a foreign country, let's say like Argentina, to generate dollars, they need to export goods. And developing countries almost always rely on natural resources, either fossil or mineral extraction um, or uh, industrial agriculture um, or agricultural commodities to export to generate dollars. So the IMF and the World Bank really encouraged this in the 1980s. And many developing countries developed um, robust, you know, agricultural export commodity markets, you know, growing things like coffee and cotton, palm oil recently, recently soy as well. So these, these kinds of programs have continued over the decades since the 80s, and these export commodity markets have been created since then. Unfortunately, that means that investments in local food systems, in sustainable food systems, were sidelined instead to prioritize export the export of commodity crops. So what's, what that's done is actually left a lot of developing countries reliant on imports for basic staple foods. Oftentimes, instead of supporting local uh, varieties of grains, for example, um, countries instead had to import those grains from elsewhere. And unfortunately, kind of around the same time, countries in the global north were heavily subsidizing their own grain markets. So they were producing wheat at a very low price that developing countries just could not compete with. And if we look at Africa, for example, many countries in Africa are now heavily reliant on grain imports to feed their populations instead of producing those grains or foods themselves. The Global South imports grain from the Global North because it would be way more expensive for them to produce it themselves. You see the problem? 
So the result has been really a global industrialized food system with a very long supply chain where you have fertilizers, for example, coming out of Russia and Ukraine that are transported to Brazil to grow soybeans that are then transported over to Europe to feed a bunch of cattle uh, that are then converted into meat, right? So these global supply chains that are extremely vulnerable then to shocks, things like the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, climate shocks, these things disrupt this global supply chain of food and make it so that the countries most vulnerable, um, the poorest countries, are the hardest hit in these cases. Okay, so let me try and summarise this. We have food systems around the world, but especially in developing countries, who are reliant on imported crops to survive because they must produce food like coffee or sugar, which they have to export. Why? To pay down debt. But why are they struggling to pay back? We're in a situation where interest rates have been rising very steadily and very rapidly over the last year, and that makes it more difficult for countries to pay back their debt. What they have to pay back becomes more expensive. And that's making it so that a lot of these countries that are in debt are reaching levels where they actually can't pay back their debts any longer. And Right now, the IMF and the World Bank categorize 60% of low-income countries defined as in-debt distress or nearing debt distress, and 30% of middle-income countries at or near debt distress. So what does it mean for a country to be in debt distress? It means that they have to make so many payments to pay back loans and debt that they can't actually invest in their own sustainable development. So what we're seeing is, unfortunately, countries that they don't even have a choice. They have to pay back their debts instead of feeding their populations. At a moment when food prices are extremely high, fertilizer prices are extremely high, fuel prices are extremely high, there's a cost of living crisis, and people are really suffering. And developing countries really have their hands tied. How does this situation, like everything that you just described, how does it impact people's food security in countries of the global south? So at the moment, we, even though food prices have gone down a bit since last year's really e extreme highs, food prices are still historically high. For people in developing countries, low-income countries, who already pay a large share of their income on basic necessities like food and shelter, uh, like food and fuel, that means that many of them are having, making difficult decisions. This vicious circle of debt in countries of the Global South drives a big part of their population into food poverty, while fueling a dysfunctional industrial food system which also fails to feed the rest of the world. Global food systems at the moment are doing a very bad job of nourishing people, um, both in the Global North and in the Global South. In the Global North, we're dealing with a crisis of malnutrition, really. People are not eating healthy, nutritious diets. And there's a proliferation of diseases as a result of that called non-communicable diseases. A lot of that has to do with the fact that the, the healthiest food options are just out of reach for most consumers. They're, they're inaccessible um, or even they're not available in many, in many situations. 
you heard her. Our current food system does not nourish people properly, even in Europe, which sounds counterintuitive when you think of the abundance of food that can be found in supermarkets. But don't misunderstand me, food supply is not at stake in the EU today. However, we are seeing a concerning inflation of food prices, which, as you will have probably guessed, mostly impacts the poorest, especially households with children and low-income households. In Europe, 8.6% of people are unable to afford a proper meal. And this problem bears consequences for our health. To explain this all to us, I'm on my way to meet up with Alba Gilles, policy officer at the European Public Health Alliance. Alba, can you explain to us a bit more who, who is suffering from food poverty in the EU and what are the main health outcomes? Yeah, so... First of all, we, we need to understand that food poverty has two dimensions. We have food poverty in terms of uh, affordability. This is people who cannot afford uh, a proper meal. And we have food poverty in terms of accessibility. This means people who cannot access healthy food. So when talking about uh, affordability and the last data by, by Eurostat, uh, they indicate that approximately 22% of the Europeans in the European Union cannot afford a proper meal every second day. So we are talking about one-fifth of the European population. And the, the main outcomes uh, for health are uh, well, malnutrition, micronutrient deficit, uh, no proper development of cognitive function, especially if we are talking about kids or teenagers, pregnant, elderly, but also indirect health outcomes like anxiety, stress. If you cannot afford a proper meal every second day, I don't think you are in a in a relaxed state of mind where, where, where you can sleep like a baby. So these are also the, the indirect uh, health impacts. And in terms of, of uh, food accessibility, this is people who cannot access uh, healthy food The main outcomes are mostly non-communicable diseases. These are diseases that are not transmissible. Uh, for example, obesity, uh, diabetes, uh, several kinds of cancer, pulmonary uh, diseases, cardiovascular diseases. And we do know that these are a leading cause of premature uh, deaths in the European Union. So the, the health outcomes are are mostly a detriment of life quality, but also uh you might end your life before you should. And these non-communicable diseases, they represent uh, 90% of all deaths in the European Union. Well, this is very depressing and also something surprising. Um, I was not expecting it to be such a big number. Yeah, it is. We know that uh, obesity and, and overweight, the numbers is 60% of the European population, including kids. So... It's an epidemic, according to the WHO. What are the the root causes of? Uh, so I would I wanted to say food poverty, but then you you explain two different dimensions. So maybe you will uh, make a distinction between the, the root causes for these two. I don't know, but my question more in general: What are the yeah the reasons uh, behind food poverty? The reasons when we talk about food poverty. It's, of course, uh, as we said, uh, in terms of affordability and in terms of accessibility. Uh, so uh, affordability, we know that uh, inflation is especially uh, increasing in, in foods, in fresh foods. Uh, so vegetables, fruits, meat, fish, uh, pools, nuts. 
uh, and also in general the cost of livings are are way more higher than than before and we know that there is a certain uh, part of the population really suffering from this and in terms of accessibility it's a it's also a structural problem we we although we have access to supermarkets or to to places where food is sell it's all sorry um there is no wide range of healthy food that we can uh, buy and we do know that the whole environment and the whole context under which we buy consume cook food it's biased towards unhealthy food um, and non-nutritious uh, food stuffs. And we are back to that crucial concept of food environments, which encompass all the external factors that influence our food choices, like food prices, labelling, advertisements and so on. And as we just heard Alba say, advertisement and food marketing play a huge role in consumer behaviour. Um, for example, when we go to the supermarket, Yes, when you enter the supermarket, the first thing usually it's, it's beautiful uh, fruits and, and shiny vegetables and all green. But we do know this is a marketing strategy for you to feel attracted to go in the supermarket. Once you are in the supermarket, it's where the, the real trap begins. And the whole supermarket is designed for you not to buy uh, necessarily bananas, but to buy all kind of unhealthy foods, which are the, the foods that provide the bigger margins of uh, benefits for the supermarkets. Fruits and vegetables are, are what attracts people inside the shop. And this is counterintuitive. I would have expected uh, sneaker bars or junk food to attract people, but actually people are naturally attracted to healthy food then. Yeah, and if you see at least big supermarkets, the first thing you will see when you enter mm. It's, it's the first, the first fruits and vegetables. Yeah. But then I insist everything is designed for you to buy what they want you to buy. But even the, the shelves, distributions, what is at your eye level, what is the eye level of the kids? Because of course it's different heights. Try with the chocolate section, for example. At, at the eye level of, a, of an adult, you have typical chocolate bars and a bit higher, which is not at your eye level is the higher percentage of cacao. So you have 90%, 85% cacao. And down like the level of the kids, then you find all kind of explicit market for kids, chocolates and cereals. With higher prices and manipulative marketing, it's not easy for us all to make a healthy and sustainable food choice every day, if ever. If we look at the numbers, we see that low-income uh, populations are the ones suffering more from uh, dietary patterns, from non-communicable diseases. And these are ones uh, that have first less resources to buy fresh foods and healthy foods. And they are uh, more uh, biased because if with two euros you can buy uh, five, six apples or a package of cookies, it's more likely that you will buy a package of cookies because this will allow you to feed your family for a longer time than, this, uh, than these apples. And at the end, these people are the ones suffering most from, from non-communicable diseases. But the, and this is a loop because we do know also that these people have struggles accessing healthcare systems, proper education. They have uh, longer uh, working hours, maybe more physical uh, jobs. And this is uh, it's a feedback for it. It's a exclusion trap and a poverty trap that 
I think it's a failure of societies. I think it's a failure of the social contract where the governments are supposed to provide us with a basic structure where we can develop ourselves and act as humans and as citizens. But this situation is not irreversible at all. What we need is for political leaders from local to European level to take legislative action to ensure all citizens can have access to good, nourishing and healthy food. Let's start from the EU. What can they do to help? The answer is food environments, food environments and food environments. And now the EU has a golden opportunity with the sustainable food system framework to, to plant the seed for food environments and to allow uh, further legislation on this. Uh, food environments is, is the context under which uh, consumer citizens engage with food, you know. But not only when you eat, but when you prepare the food at home, when you go to the office, uh, when you uh, buy this, all the context, it's for environments. For example, food marketing for kids or food marketing for adults, but for kids because they, they are more vulnerable if this should be regulated at EU level. Let's pause here for a moment because Alba just mentioned a very important piece of legislation the Sustainable Food Systems Law. Allow me to introduce you to it, because although its very long name might have already spooked you, it will be a game-changer for the future of European food. I'll be quick. The European Commission will propose that law in September 2023, so basically tomorrow. This is a once-in-a-lifetime chance to change our food system for the better, because, if written correctly, it would mainstream sustainability in all food-related policy areas, such as health, environment, trade and agriculture. This means that it could help address systemic issues like unequal access to healthy and affordable food, unsustainable agricultural practices and even the concentration of power and wealth in the food industry. Quite cool, right? Yes, indeed, and very much needed. But I know what you're gonna say. That's all nice and promising, but it's not happening now now. So meanwhile, How do we help people in a situation of food insecurity? I'm glad you asked, because when we think about solutions to tackling food poverty, the first thing that comes to mind is food aid. From the UK to Spain to Germany to Latvia, food bank demand is soaring across Europe. And it's a similar story across the Americas. Food banks in Canada have reported record-breaking visits to food banks. In Argentina, food banks are unable to meet demand, and in the US, food bank use is up one-third compared to before the COVID-19 pandemic. At Slow Food, we think that food aid, while serving a role in extreme situations, cannot be a long-term response to food insecurity, because having to ask for food deprives people of their dignity and does not solve at all the overall problem of the broken food system. Uh, hello, Samantha. Thank you very much for uh, joining us for this podcast today. Thanks. I talked about this with Samantha, an environmental economist who is also a member of a slow food community in France and the founder of an NGO called Altrimenti, which means otherwise in Italian. With her NGO, she fights against food waste and is committed to helping give vulnerable people access to sustainable food. Starting from unsold food, mostly fruits and vegetables, and their neglected parts, tops, stalks, peelings, Altrimenti organize programs against food insecurity, general public awareness raising activities like cooking workshops aimed at the construction of a real food right 
based on choices and the reconstruction of a healthy, sustainable food culture. Moreover, in 2019, I created Altripasti, the first artisanal workshop of canned goods made from decommissioned vegetables and organic parts in order to create jobs for people in difficulty, mostly women. Food aid is a spontaneous gesture of help, mutual aid taken over by citizens and associations. When, in fact, food aid is a social, economic and environmental issue. I mean, food aid has its value, but must remain a tool of urgency. It cannot be systematic. Solidarity cannot and should not be used like a engine to heal market failures like overproduction and to solve negative externalities of the market. I think that the current organization of food aid policy and overproduction have created serious economic and social distortions that deserve the common good and the general interest. For example, today there are some for-profit companies that position themselves as intermediary for recovering unsold food to distribute it to charities associations. To be honest, I reject this sick model that adds poverty to poverty. And what would you expect from political leaders to do to fight food poverty? What would you want them to put in place to help uh, people also uh, gain food independence and re regain dignity? What I think as an economist and a field actor is that we need to change the paradigm to build a real social equity, climate justice and rights. So, I ask that public policies have another approach to food insecurity, an approach that is not paternalistic to the question. The access to food for underprivileged people has to have another way of thinking and doing. And according to me, public policies They have to put in place real support policies that are not based on aid, but on the creation of favorable conditions for emancipation. Around the world, we produce a lot of food, yet hunger is on the rise. While a growing number of people from the Global South must battle every day to simply get access to food, Vulnerable populations from the Global North cannot afford healthy and nourishing food. The current food system leaves many behind, putting profit before people. This is why we call on political leaders from any level to take a stand against such injustice and commit to reshaping our food system and giving it back its true purpose, nourishing everyone. As Alba said, having access to healthy and sustainable food is part of the social contract. It is a human right and we must fight for it.
Thank you, Alice Poiron, for hosting this episode. If you want to be updated about the current advocacy topics around food, we suggest you to follow the Slow Food Europe Twitter account. You will find the link in the podcast description. If you like this episode, remember to share it with your friends and give us a good rating or review on your favorite podcasting platforms. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast or if you have any suggestions for us, reach out to podcast.sfin.org or via social media. This is Valentina Gritti and you have listened to Slow Food, the podcast. <laughs>